0: Welcome to the next installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. As always, I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson.
1: Hello, Patrick, and how are you today, sir?
0: Wound up like an eight-day clock, and I got the extra-large iced coffee going here. Mm. Yeah, I
1: would have to agree with you on that. I've been busier than the proverbial one-arm paper hanger in the hurricane there. But, uh, yeah, it's it's getting kind of crazy out here.
0: Yeah, you got to stay, you know, uh, on top of all of it. But, uh, yeah, so the 107 thing is going. It's full force. Everyone's going out, getting their license. It's on. We're all, I'm just $89 billion short of the $89 billion projected that I'm going to make. But I was gonna ask you for a loan just to hold me over until say next week or something.
1: I'm 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 eighty eight billion nine hundred whatever thousand and fifty cents just below you.
0: All right. So I'll have to look elsewhere. So any yeah. uh, any other news stories catch your attention this week, Gene.
1: Well, you know, of course we we've gotta still keep trumpeting our little uh, our little feet with the the vigilant. Down there in New Zealand Getting 425 kilometers in Woohoo You know on a single battery pack We're pretty excited about that So that was a a good one
0: How long did that I didn't read the story Because I was on the road yesterday Um, But uh, how long did that take
1: Uh, It was pushing right at eight hours So uh, imagine staring in the sky With you know your contact lenses Looking up there for eight hours You got to figure that You know you pretty well Burned your eyeballs in
0: yeah I'd say so after eight hours so that's pretty impressive that's uh, that's not bad at all I you know I think you could probably make some money with uh, longevity like that so that's good news
1: we'll see we'll see
0: (laughs) we'll see Um, all right well you know today we're gonna cover the topic of detecting drones and that includes knowing where they are in the air traffic sense for full mass integration and for places they should not be Our guests this week are from Griffin Sensors, Mr. Craig Uh Mer- Mer- ah, Man, I am going to massacre your last name on that one And Kevin Nestman. Uh hello gentlemen
2: Hello Patrick, how we doing?
3: Hello
0: Pretty good, um, you know, we're just uh, out here enjoying uh, flying legally under Part 107 Right on yeah, it's it's a long time waiting, and, and we've been um, we're excited now, so we're out there doing it. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the work that you guys do. I know that uh, you guys have been working um, basically on drone detection for a couple of different things, but uh, maybe you guys could give us a little bio and how you became involved with the unmanned aircraft. Craig, Marsh, can, I'm sorry, could you no, please I got, I got go first, understand.
2: Craig? Craig Marsonkowski, thank you, Patrick. And, yeah, um, Kevin and myself, we're with uh, Griffin Sensors. We've been in this space for a couple of years now. Um, We were spun out of SRC, uh, formerly Syracuse Research Corporation, who's a not-for-profit DOD contractor that's been around for the better part of 60 years now. And their heritage has really been deep in radar, electronic warfare, primarily for the U.S. military. Um, And SRC really got into the UAS space in a couple of areas. One, helping the, the, the Army integrate their own drones into the national airspace. Typically, they've been having to, to fly those with a chase plane. Uh, they have a program called Ground-Based Sense and Avoid, where they're using some of our primary our radars as a primary sensor to detect and avoid potential uh, incursions or other aircraft that are out there, allow the Army's craft to do, a, do avoidance maneuvers. Uh, and that system um, has been, you know, getting approvals through the FAA and, and basically for allowing them to fly beyond visual line of sight without a chase plane. So that's, that's one area where SRC has really gotten into the into the UAS integration game. And then also on the counter UAS side, um, they've been helping the U.S. military and other groups you know, to attack and potentially mitigate, you know, UAS threats from a, a Department of Defense um, angle. So fast forward to, to Griffin. Um, you know, we spun out to really address the commercial markets. Um, we're, not, we're not looking at real military applications or anything like that. We're looking at saying, hey, how can we do ground-based sense and avoid to help enable those beyond-visual line-of-sight um, commercial flights? Or if there's certain customers that are looking for um, maybe drone security applications, maybe at a stadium or the F.A. at airports, helping them detect and track those types of crafts. So that's a uh, you know, uh, high-level bio. Griffin Sensors is really focused on c- commercial space in drone integration and also uh, drone security if needed. Yeah, well, how did you get involved in this? Just, you know, we were doing a lot of, um, you know, as we were doing the military work on the SRC side, we could see this commercial market really uh, pulling us and emerging and we were trying to migrate military technology into those markets. And we're able to do it with some limited success, but there's challenges in, in bringing over control technology maybe into commercial space. There's also military frequency bands that some of these uh, systems operate at. So we tried to take a clean clean approach at Griffin and say we're gonna build systems from the ground up, every design, trade, and optimization made for these types of targets. You know, We do radar, um, spectrum sensing. Kevin will get into the different technologies here probably later on. Um, but we built everything from the ground up for this commercial space to really drive down costs and also make sure we have systems that can be exported around the world for a global market. So that, that it kind of evolved naturally from all the, the commercial pull on the defense side, and we said, look, we're going to break something out and really go after the commercial market um, from the beginning, from the ground up with some new sensors. Great, right,
0: right. Well, um, you know let's say the the last time we kind of caught up here was back at the expo at the end of April Kevin you presented at that but uh, i, I there a lot of water has kind of gone under the bridge since that and i know that um you guys responded to the FAA Pathfinder call someone want to talk a little bit about that
2: sure absolutely the um the Pathfinder for um airport security was it yes yeah, well, wasn't that the RFI
0: that uh, FAA put
2: out? Right. Yeah, because we're participating in a, in a couple pathfinders. But, yeah, I think the one um, we're talking about there is for um, airport security, and a, um, there's a couple other companies involved there as well. But um, yeah, the, the FAA um, contacted us, let us know that um, you know we were selected basically um, for evaluation of our technology, and it's part of a cooperative research and development agreement. The way that pathfinder works, so. Um, we're not funded by the FAA, but we're, you know, we're bringing our technology to the table. They're bringing some assets, uh, people on their side, locations to do testing, and they're going to be evaluating um, our technology for its ability to detect and track um, drones around airports, if you will.
0: Right. And it's, you know, I mean, some people would talk about that and some people, uh, you know, there's drone detection and uh, there's, you know, a counter drone and things get lumped into that. But really, um, you know, there, I, I'm a, in a safety sense, a strong believer, there are certain places that drones just shouldn't be. And uh, one of them is operating um, around you know let's say manned aircraft uh, unauthorized so so we need to figure that out now full uh, disclosure i did uh, have some experience with the uh, sr hawk product when i was working for the navy on the pgss program and oh, i would awesome. call it robust and reasonably priced you know i think yeah. uh, you know when people they go oh you know radar man hey radar is a solution for everything well some companies are very proud of their radar and not to say that SR, the SRC people weren't proud of their radar, but it was it, it was reasonably priced as far as radars are, are concerned, and it, and it really worked. It was, did a good job.
2: Yeah, I think that SRC has really been known for that you know lightweight, low cost, high performance, you know, very very portable system. So that's that's uh, good to get that feedback from the field because that's that's what we've really kind of prided ourselves on and, and spinning off Griffin. That's, that's the same heritage. We're really trying to, to get into this space with affordable solutions. And, and to your point there about the, you know, drone tracking or drone security, we're really looking at it from a safety standpoint as well. And you know, our mission, why we were stood up, was to, to help safely integrate UAS into the national airspace system. And, and part of that is being able to detect and see um, everything that's out there, whether it's non-cooperative targets that you're trying um, to avoid or also, um, in, in some of those non-cooperatives, could be small drones, you know, around airports or other places where you want to make sure you can see everything that's in the airspace. Right,
0: and, and I think you know the other thing with that is that people, oh, you know, education, you know, oh, yes, you know, this again is a kind of a multi-layered approach to, let's say, safety. I think education is a component of that, but you know, in the numbers that these uh, small, let's say, consumer drones are being sold um and where you can buy them everywhere including target and whatnot uh you know it's hard to educate everyone uh about all of the potential hazards of drones so i think even beyond that you're going to need systems that can detect uh these things and people can go out and say hey you know what you can't fly here you know it, it's just a this isn't the place to come and fly Um, things like that, and and, and airports and uh, GA airports and other places. So I agree Um, that's something that's important. Just keep those two kind of separated, and that's that's one thing that's really working good. Now, also, um, integration or NASA integration, National Airspace System integration uh, side of things. You guys are working with NASA UTM, correct?
3: Yes. Yep. Yeah, we've been out at uh, the UTM since the technical capability level one last year. We were, uh, I believe, the only radar on the ground at the time, and we did use a hawk for that, uh, kind of repurposed while we're working on uh, new technology. And this year we've been at several of their um, integration and test events, working up towards late October. They're having their big uh, technical capability level two, which is basically a mock beyond visual line of sight using visual observers, of uh, four or five crafts simultaneously in the air, and we're providing several services there. One is um, non, you know, the non-cooperative target detection, primary radar, both from the drones, you know, the small small crafts, and uh, supporting some large general aviation, um, you know, avoidance with a uh, human in the loop, you know, just range safety type considerations to make it a safe operation, and uh, that's been that's been terrific, and sort of to touch on what you were just talking about you know, we've got the security and the counter drone, which has kind of a negative connotation to it. But From the standpoint of NASA's vision of UTM and integration, this is more along what we call enforcement. So in, in the context of UTM in and around an airport or some critical infrastructure, uh, we, we, we consider that to be an enforcement application. The same installation that can do the UTM application can also catch bad actors or even good actors that go into a rogue state. You know they lose they lose control. You know where where do they go? We can still detect those craft, and that's that's one of the services we're uh, providing to NASA.
0: Right, right.
3: Well, you know, like you said, some people have
0: some uh, you know negative thoughts about that. I I, I don't. Again, there's there's just places where they shouldn't be. You know, uh, and um, so I think that's important. And also, I think you came up with the, also another um, consideration, you know, lost link or whatever something. Uh, an incursion into airspace. That's not intentional. You're still going to want to know where that is uh, to, let's say, avoid any mishaps or accidents. Um, So, you know, as far as that uh, the unmanned traffic puzzle goes, I mean, my, my feeling with it is, is, you know, again, I I think all of these things are kind of multi-layered type of approach. And I I have talked to PK and NASA about this. And I, you know, I think you're going to have to have like, procedures, best practices, infrastructure, equipage, uh, probably some regulation, um, you know, put all of, all of these puzzle pieces together to really build something that is safe, reliable, and uh, accepted by, let's say, all of the stakeholders. You guys agree with that, or, or you think you, uh, you got something else?
2: Oh, absolutely, and um, you know we're in alignment with PK there, and and, and there's different risk profiles in different areas, and, and absolutely a layered approach makes makes total sense.
0: Right, right. Now the only you know my thing was is too is just uh, you know it's kind of um, I don't know. I did some grousing early on. It was just like kind of a finger in the wind because nobody really knows how many of these systems are going to be out there, uh, and we've seen numbers all over the place. But you know you got to. I guess, put a line in the sand somewhere and say, well, here it is. This is the starting line, and we got to try and get something going here. And it's all uh, its kind of coming together. I know that the test was pretty successful. Uh, wh- where were you guys uh, located for that uh, for the test? That,
3: that test is done out at the uh, Reno Stead um, test, test site. So that's one of the FAA-approved uh, test sites. And um, it's kind of north of Reno, maybe 20 minutes or so. And we were positioned, you know, just outside the perimeter of operations, um, you know, because the radar has pretty long range, so we were kind of standing outside the, the uh, area. Our CONAX, or tent, was, you know, in, in the mix around the other ground stations uh, next to NASA and the NIAS, um, you know, they're, they're the ones that are running that test site. So there's a big happy family out there, you know, running, running operations for a few days. But up
0: there at Reno, you guys actually had birds in the air. It wasn't a simulation, right?
3: Yeah, this is all real craft. It's a, it's a very active airport, especially in the morning hours with general aviation. It's an untowered airport, so they're kind of coming in and going, visual, visual flight rules only. And uh, so we're using um, um, one of the SRC radars that's on the ground that uh, NASA acquired is uh, LSTAR radar, using that primarily to see pretty long range on the general aviation and call them in as they're coming in to land, and then we make sure all drones are on the ground. And then in, in the tandem to that, we would have one of the off radars set up to see really small, you know, bird, birds, literally birds, and um, and these drones uh, just to all out and track operations there as well. One of the scenarios we ran was actually a rogue craft that simulated not submitting a flight plan before it took off, and then we issued a warning to the NASA UTM system to say that that craft went rogue. So those, those are all types of scenarios they mock up, and we just kind of do whatever they say, you know, trying to help as much as we can there.
0: Right, right. Gene, any comments from the quiet
3: one? Yeah, you know, I've been sitting here listening
1: to that, and we talked about procedures and policies and that sort of thing for all the stakeholders. But uh, one of the things I think probably became more prevalent than anything else after 107 is how many operators out there really didn't know what they were doing. And uh, I, I I hate to say this, but uh, I, I think a lot of incursions and things like that that you guys would probably intercept will be out of ignorance for quite some time, unfortunately, because there is this misconception that we can go out and we can fly hither and yon and do whatever we want, uh, and I think that's why you guys have such a, a, a promising and bright future. So, I mean, that's my, my kind of look at it, and uh, I, I don't know that uh, you're going to have any maliciously uh, intended aircraft or, or not as many as you would think, and I think they're all going to be unintended.
0: More than anything else, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the, the uh, I, I took one of the the prep classes for the 107, and I, I noticed. I mean, most of the people that were in there were were drone people, and had never looked at a um, sectional. And it was kind of interesting to see them look at this uh, sectional and go, "Oh man, you know, we've been flying in uh, NASA Ames airspace, you know, and uh, I didn't know that." Or I've been flying in the airspace for uh, San Jose or or SFO, and now I'm going to have to get uh, permission to fly there. Wow, I I didn't know that. And I'm like, you know, good luck, you know. So I think that a lot of the people kind of in the – that have been doing this under the radar, no pun intended, have uh, had no idea really what any of this meant or the airspace meant or – you know, uh, air traffic control or any of it. And I think you're going to have a lot of people that are going to go, wow, I can't operate where I wanted to operate anymore. The other one I think is kind of funny is people are like, hey, I get on that website and I'm, you know, applying for uh, authorization to fly in this airspace and they haven't gotten back to me and it's been a week, you know, well, some of that doesn't go live, but um, I, I, I think, uh, let's say, there'll be a, a learning curve for people who are not aviation people. And, again, I think you're right, uh, Gene. There's going to be a lot of folks that will, well, I, I've been flying here forever. What do you mean? I, I don't get it. How come I can't fly here now? So uh, I think on the safety part of that will be something that's interesting. But also as this as this UTM thing kind of, uh, let's say, gels up, takes shape, and things happen, That'll be a whole other way for us to operate, but also something that the, 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 let's say, the the 107, or remote pilot, is going to have to learn uh, the procedures of working in on that. So, uh, yeah, I do think you guys have a promising future. I think we're going to have tons of drones out there, and, uh, you know, we we need to keep everyone kind of separated so we don't have problems. Plus, there's also, uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, and this might be getting out beyond what you guys are doing now, but, uh, you know, the companies that want to deliver, you know, we got the the revamp of the burrito thing and Amazon and all the rest of that. I mean, these types of commercial operations are going to have to be, uh, you know, I guess, tracked. Well, yeah. well tracked. I mean, so is there, have you been got, have you guys, and I know, you know, you probably have NDAs or whatever, but it, has any of that even been thought of, talked about, sure. looked at?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not just about detecting the drones themselves, but also all the larger mancraft around them, you know, at much longer range. And, you know, we're trying to make sure that uh, there's a certain level of performance that you need to be able to see them very low to the ground uh, you know, uh, at very slow velocities as well because some of these uh, manned craft can go pretty slow. And uh, being able to uh, get it precise enough that you can give an accurate, you know, warning vector if you were to issue some sort of a detect-and-avoid maneuver, you know, for, for the unmanned craft to get out of the way. So those are definitely um, uh, the long-term con-ops that we're envisioning for the safe integration. It's not just detecting the little guys. It's seeing the big guys and telling the little guys that they're there is, is kind of what we're aiming for. It's kind of like the ground-based sensitive void application we are yep. talking about for the
2: Army. And, you know, you talked names um, there, Patrick. You know, we mentioned one pathfinder earlier. We are participating in another pathfinder um, with BNSF where they're trying to fly beyond visual line of sight. Um, in similar cut up to what um, Kevin was just saying there, they're using our ground radar to detect Um, any other intruders or non-cooperative aircraft that are out there so they can safely fly beyond visual line of sight without a chase plane or without ground observers.
0: Right, right. And, I mean, you know, even in the commercial sense, that's going to be a commerce thing. I mean, these things are going to have to be, you know, uh, tracked and watched and all the rest of that. So that will be interesting how that kind of comes together. Um, You guys are also doing something with USAFE. Could you tell us more about that?
2: Sure. This is a really interesting program uh, being funded by the state of New York, actually, um, through a grant from the governor's office, and it stands for um, UAS Secure Autonomous Flight Environment. Um, it's a five-year initiative um, that's being funded to the tune of $250 million. And uh, the two main objectives at, at a high level, um, you talked about UTM and, and all the great work that PK and NASA have done to really you know, push this uh, research platform that they've put Uh, out to the community forward, the collaboration community they've brought together. Um, What we're looking to do here beginning in the central New York area and then moving out um, across other parts of the state is to actually build out um, a real-world implementation of UTM over Onondaga County. It's a population metro of roughly 500,000 people. And then bring in the FAA to certify that system. And that system in five years uh, we want over Onondaga County to be um, beyond visual line-of-sight, autonomous flights, many vehicles in the same airspace at the same time is the end goal, and we're starting, you know, crawl, walk, run, as they say, we're starting out at the FAA test site 40 miles down the road, um, testing there, moving slowly off of the range until we get over populated areas and over the city, multiple vehicles, beyond visual line-of-sight, autonomous operations. So out of, uh, for Project USAFE, one piece of it is UTM, building that out, you know, real-world implementation in, in performance validating or... Careful what you say. Don't want to say certify, but um, some type of certification process with the FAA to say that what we're doing there is safe, and we'll be working hand in hand with them uh, to do that, building the safety cases and validating the system. The other component of Project USAFE is is New Star. Are, are you familiar with New Star at all, Patrick? Have you heard that one? I'm not. So that's a that's another NASA originated concept. Um, um, that PK was pushing as well. It stands for National UAS Standardized Test and Rating. Basically, it's almost like um, Underwriter's Labs for drones. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, the plan right now is to construct that facility here in the in the Central New York area as well. It'll be a, a national asset. It's being uh, projected right now about a 70 to an 80 million dollar facility. You can almost uh, imagine it is as. Um, Almost like a mock indoor city, if you will, where you can test drones against a variety of different scenarios to performance benchmark and validate them. Whether it's fog, sand, wind, dust, um, GPS denied environment, there'll be a cyber lab in there as well where you can validate comms links and, and the cyber hardiness of craft. Um, but at the end of the day, your you know, craft will go through the New Star facility and come out with some type of rating, and and there will be um, those craft that then plug into your certified or performance validated UTM system will all need some type of new star rating and they'll know what types of operations they've been validated to perform. Um, So you project USAFE in the state of New York 250 million dollar initiative focused on safe UAS integration. Two main pieces both NASA founded concepts UTM actually building out and performance validating a beyond visual line of sight UTM in central New York and then building this new star facility and the standards for how craft will be performance validated.
0: Hmm. Well, I you know I was aware of the concept of the performance validation, but not the acronym. And it's a it's a long time actually in uh, coming and in need because as it is now, we don't really there are no standards for anything. I mean, and I think that's going to be another thing that's going to be uh, for the integration or say so the mass integration of of drones into the NAS. Uh, meantime between failures, C two. Um, Exactly. Like, you know, uh, let's performance. Uh, you yeah, because it was funny too. In this, as far as even in the testing is, oh, you know, uh, you know, the performance of these things should be in the manual. Well, a lot of a lot of these, uh, let's say, drones or or consumer grade aircraft do not really have performance uh, criteria in their manuals. So you know, it's kind of a hunt and peck on the boards to kind of find out what they can handle, things like that. So I, I think that's very important in moving the industry forward and, uh, let's say, reliability and accountability on the manufacturer's uh, side of things.
3: So that will yeah. be
0: interesting. Yeah. So and you guys are going to be
3: – oh, go ahead. I was going to say I, we find it funny because a lot of – you know, anybody that flies one of these crafts for fun or commercial – you know, if they just publish their own MTBF specs of their own craft, like how many times does an ESC burnout, a motor, uh, it's all the time you know to trying to get some sort of numbers on that so that you can actually reliably say, "Hey, this thing's near a service you know point six months in or whatever would be uh, well, very valuable. Uh,
0: it is, and you know I, I, I had pushed um, you know some of the uh, OEMs and then also uh, the OEMs to do some some scientific testing, um, uh, you know, on meantime between failures and also non-participants and other uh, other things like that. And, you know, there's lots of pushback. Eh, you know, it's like um, really, well, I mean, I think you need to know what you, what you have here before you go out and you start talking about, you know, how you think it's safe and you think this is going to work and you think that. Now, Gene, I know you wanted to jump in here. Go ahead.
1: I did, I did, because uh, I do know that NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is also pursuing some of the same things as far as designating and standardizing a, a, a drone uh, within their system. Have you guys heard anything about what, the, what NIST is doing and their, their studies?
2: Uh, we, we have heard, I can't say we've spoken directly with them yet, but through, through NASA. In um, other channels, talking with ASTM and some other groups as well. Yes, we, we are aware of that. We're trying to make sure we're coordinated with all these groups and have all, all the stakeholders at the table for how um, performance standards are set, um, methods, and procedures for how they're being validated. Yeah, that's
1: exactly what they're working on. I know that they they there was some uh, research down here at SWERI, at Southwest Research Institute, uh, where they, they built much of the the obstacle course type of situations that you had discussed right. in, you know, the enclosed building. Uh, and they're also doing some drop studies as well, from what I understand, so that they can determine that, you know, how deadly it's going to be when it hits you in the head. So, yeah, oh, like, yeah you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of been in on all of that and kind of watched that from afar, but uh, I, I had to figure that that's going to be a player on down the road.
0: Well, I think, Absolutely. you know, that and then also I think there's going to be some uh, litigation and, and, and liability issues because, you know, I've talked to some of these uh, Fortune 500 companies when we will remain nameless, but, you know, they want to start using these drones and they we're going to buy consumer drones. And I'm like, hey, you know, do you think these things are actually going to hold up to riding in a truck for a year? Um, you know, have you thought about a maintenance thing and if you have a mishap and they crash and, you know, validation and testing? Oh, gee whiz, we never thought of that, you know. Um, I, you know, personally, my thing is anytime you have a serious uh, mishap, uh, the, the integrity or quality of even the electronics in the system could be called into question, which may be, let's say, something that leads to an incursion, like we were talking about at the first of the podcast, where you lose control because of a uh, vibration or, uh, you know, some, some malfunction, like electronics malfunction. Um, so, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out and then also how that plays out with companies offering, like, say, drones as a service, and I know that's trademarked. So send a cease and desist letter to Gary at SUS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But anyway, you, you know where I'm going with this. I think uh, we're all adults and we understand where, where this
2: is going. Absolutely. Hey, one of the other interesting things I just thought of as you were, you were um, talking about that, Patrick, was um, one of the other capabilities of New Star that the insurance companies and, and other um, groups within Washington are interested in, um, you know, if and when there are, there are accidents or things that happen, um, there'll be this whole forensic side of New Star where you'll be able to hopefully, you know, recreate um, those types of events and do some forensics analysis. So that's another, um, you know, one of the benefits of that facility and one of the, one of the requirements.
0: Well, I think that'll be good. Uh, you know, I think it'll be good for everyone involved. Uh, the quality needs to come up, um, you know, across the board, especially if you're going to operate over people. You know, I, I always tell people, you know, anytime you have some, some accident or a mishap or someone gets hurt, it's bad for everyone. So we, we need to uh, we need to work on that reliability part of it, which I'm sure will be coming. Now, you guys are going to be at the uh, the UTM uh, symposium that was kind of mentioned earlier. was at the end of October.
3: So there's, uh, I think, the October was uh, TCL2. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, oh, that's actually okay. the test event back out at Reno Stead. That's um, NASA's event. That's, you know, not our event. We're just going to be participating okay. with many other people. Um, that's the big capstone this year. And then they move on to CCL 3, and they have four in their plan. They have four basic capabilities as they keep pushing to um, urban environments and, and more beyond line of sight mock missions, you know, search and rescue, precision ag. You know, they're trying to do these mock scenarios. So that one's at the end of October. And then beyond that in November is the actual UTM conference. Yeah, so the, the UTM convention will
2: be hosted here actually in central New York, uh, right in our backyard in Syracuse. Um, November 8th through the 10th. That's the follow-on to the, the initial one that PK hosted um, out at NASA Ames in 2015, um, and, and this one's being held at this time, so NASA can give an update to the community on the results of technical capability level 2 work that's taking place in October. They'll be putting the report together and briefing that out to the industry here in November.
0: Yeah, I'll have to see if, now that you guys let the cat out of the bag, I'll have to see if I could get an invite to the one up there in Reno. <coughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> said, no. I'm just kidding. Okay, well that's good. Um, and there's a there's a website for the for that uh, UTM symposium. Does anybody know that off the top of their head?
2: www.utm2016.com.
0: Okay. And then uh, the your company homepage, the Griffin homepage.
2: Uh, you got a website address for that? Uh, GriffinSensors.com.
0: All right, that was hard enough. All right, well, that was a good conversation. Um,
2: Oh, and and that's that's Griffin, G-R-Y-P-H-O-N, Griffin sensors. That's probably a good
0: thing that you spelt that out. Um, It was a good conversation. I think uh, some uh, interesting topics were brought up there and uh, enlightening to the listening audience. And I'd like to thank uh, both of you for being on. And as always, Gene, thanks for being co-hosting. And uh, you know, thank you, gentlemen, and we'll see everyone next next
2: time.
3: Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much, Jane Patrick.
2: Thank you. Take care.